podcast with me Andy White and with me this week we have Terry Chapandama riding solo I bear witness there's only one God and blessings peace be upon him Muhammad is his prophet I'd like to dedicate this podcast to my man Daryl Baum I miss you I love you oh man what that's so, are you is that some sort of like homage that's, to American athletes no that's Tyson <laughs> I think that's, I don't know if it's after the Clifford NTN fight but that's Mike Tyson that's an absolute classic as you may have noticed as he hasn't piped up yet Martin is not with us this week he is having fun and games at an Irish dancing fay um if you don't know what one of those is, I suggest you look it up on uh, on Google. It sounds like a lot of fun. So Wonderful he's, 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 he's let us know it. he's having a great oh, time. Oh, he's loving it. And he's wondering why he wastes his Sundays doing podcasts. Uh, I mean, you expect to see a lot less of him as this Irish dancing thing in his life takes off. Yeah, I imagine it will take off and take over, if I'm completely honest, because he, he is loving it. Surprisingly nimble on his feet for a big man, indeed. Yeah, I mean, he's the UK champion, um, far as At I'm something, aware. yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... Let's uh, move on without uh, Mr. Theobald. And we have a fair amount to get through this week. But uh, I suppose the most logical place to start is a review of last night's boxing, which uh, let's start with the Linares qualify. Um, I take it you saw this this Linares victory unfold? I did. Um, Once again, it's it's another Eddie Hearn masterclass in how to put on a boxing event, you know, for all of his faults, you've got to give Eddie his due. He knows how to put on an event and he knows how to get that football crowd, you know, straight into the Manchester arena after a Man United game. So he timed it pretty well. You, you've got to give the guy his due. Um, he put on a great event. You know, he tried to oversell it as the battle of the number one lightweights in the world, which it really wasn't. It was just two guys probably approaching the twilight of their career, having one last big hurrah, and it was impressive to watch. I am, on the actual fight itself, I was surprised to the extent which the fight went back and forth. Constantly, I felt like the the momentum was with, um, well, it started off with Corolla, but then quickly went to Linares, and then it dropped, went back to Corolla again, and and eventually Linares seemed to, I felt like he had the most endurance, and towards the end, especially the last three rounds, I thought Crawler looked just exhausted. What I found interesting was the scorecards. I think we had 115, 114, 115, 113, and then 117, 111. And I would have probably given it 116, 112. Okay. I thought Linares was comfortable in the fight. I didn't think Crawler had the tools to deal with someone. So let's... Let's actually break he, down. He what, struggled with the power, I thought, Crow, didn't he? There are a lot of subtle things that happened. So, so if we go back to the Barroso fight, the tactics in the Barroso fight were perfect because they knew Barroso would try and bomb him out. And if he didn't bomb him out, much like Mike Tyson in his heyday, after five rounds, if you haven't taken someone out, 
you're struggling for solutions. So there, there was never really a plan B with Mike Tyson and there wasn't really a plan B with Barroso. So once you weathered the storm, you knew Crawler would come on strong and Barroso wasn't the cleverest of movers, you know, because when you're as powerful as he is, you don't normally have to defend yourself. So it worked in that fight. And so that was a big pat on the back for Gallagher being the master strategist. What happened? This is one of the few times we have seen a Gallagher fighter in with an intelligent boxer. The last time we saw that was Quig Frampton. So if you watch that fight, I think what was good about Linares was he was able to bait Anthony Crawler out of that tight two hands up guard that, you know, all Gallagher fighters love where the gloves are touching the forehead. You've got just enough vision to see like Liam Smith did against Canelo. But it's very hard to hit someone there because you've got to take the risks of either blasting through the middle and risking falling short or coming around the corner and opening yourself up for a counter. Which well, Crawler was doing, wasn't he? He was coming round and he was getting countered and he got told by his by his corner, I think it was about sort of, I think it was actually reasonably late on in the fight, eighth or ninth round. Um, he said, you've got to stop coming round because he's countering you. So, if yeah, so so you've got, you've got Crawler with his tight guard which is, so it's very hard to control the middle from what I call a, a passive defensive position because his arms aren't loose enough to exploit the opportunities right. when they come up. So what Linares was able to do was to watch Crawler and go, well, he's got at least a tenth or a fifth of a second before he can even do anything to me. So he just moved the subtle head movements, subtle shifts and angle. And so when you shift to the right and you shift that angle and all of a sudden that high guard becomes a problem because now Linares can come through the side with the hooks to the solar plexus or he can go to the other side with the left hook to the ribs, which he was doing a lot of yeah. because he was just shifting that angle. And once he did his work, he then just gently pivoted out so he was still in range, but out of punching range. So Crawler took a while to figure that out. I think he only came into his own when, and it'll be interesting to know if this is true, it looked like in the sixth round when he had Crawler hurt, it looked like Linares had injured his hand because I don't know if you remember towards the end of the round, he had him against the ropes and you thought this is the end of the fight. And he did took you, a step back. Did you watch in the end, the interviews? Um, to be honest, I switched off after I heard the result. Right, because it's funny you should say that because he did actually say that he hurt his hand in the sixth. Um, and uh, what happened, he, he then said, I hurt my hand in the sixth, I took a step back and then in the, um, just before the 10th round, he said to his corner, right, I'm just going to blast these last three rounds out and try and win the fight. So, according to Linares, he stepped away for like four rounds um, after he'd hurt, or three rounds after he'd hurt his hand. And it was... And um, it wasn't uh, a six. I assume it was his right hand as well. Cause that's oh, what, I don't know. I can't remember what they said. It, but. So, it looked like it was a right hand that went. He took... You can see it. At the end of the sixth round, you can see he takes a step back when he's meant to be going in for the kill. And it almost looked like he was taking a breather. And at the time, I thought maybe he's hurt his hand. And you watch the rest of the fight, and he was he was competitive, but what he was doing, I wouldn't call it fluid boxing. He was digging in, and and that should worry Anthony Crawler because I think if Linares had boxed the second half like he boxed the first, it would have been a shutout, a complete and utter shutout. He might have even stopped him. Um, I'd argue that's why Linares wants the rematch so bad because he knows with two good hands, you know, the Crawler fights easy money. It's a big payday without having to take that much risk. Crawler was was um, on the ropes at one point, you know, really taking a pace. And I thought yeah, and he was quite sick. lucky to lucky to come out of it. Um, but yeah, all in all, I, I 
I, much the same as you, I, I thought. I mean, it was clear. It was clear to me that Linares won, despite the fact that the commentators were saying that Crawler's confident. Uh, Corn looked confident. I don't know where they got that from, but. But remember, Sky commentators get that tap on the shoulder whenever whenever they get into real <laughs> real fighter mode and start analysing objectively. They get that gentle tap on the shoulder, or if Adam Smith is doing the commentary, they'll get that look, which is like, guys, you know, toe the corporate line. So, um, Linares came out quite quickly afterwards, as you say, and asked for the rematch. We did have a question from Matty533, Matt, um, at Matty533, Matt, uh, on Twitter, which essentially just asks if there will be a rematch. But Linares seems quite quick to jump on, I'd like to come back here to Manchester to fight, and you think that's because he sees it as easy money? Yeah, I, I, I thought I just assumed immediately. You thought, right, this is definitely a money maker, and uh, I suppose you, know, you highlight the fact that his hands hurt, and it probably can win with two good hands. Makes sense, is that? So, so, so the Lenaris that boxed yesterday, Rusty, he'd been out for a long time. You know, he hadn't had a tune-up fight before he fought Crawler. Crawler had had the Barossa fight, so emotionally, the high that Crawler was on, and in terms of just good spirit, good form, he was putting up there. Um, but if you're Linares, this is easy work. It is. You know, you're, you're fighting someone who's limited. He's not going to pose you anything different to what he's done before. Linares, you know, has moved up the weights, so he knows he's a small lightweight. Let's be absolutely clear about this. He's a small, lightweight. He doesn't boil down to make 135. He's moved up the weights. So he needs someone like a crawler who's not a big, lightweight, you know, so he can make his punches tell. Against a guy like a Robert Easter Jr. who boils down to 135, Linares will struggle because that's a bigger, stronger man. Richard Comey, same thing. So he knows this is easy money. Maybe he'll make three quarters of a million for the next fight. Probably made about 400k, half a million for this one. So you would have made 1.25 million for going 24 rounds with a guy who doesn't hurt that much. You know, despite the rumours of Anthony Crawler's power, basically he stopped Barossa because Barossa's tank ran empty. Well, what about the bout of things about the eighth round? Crawler gave him a few sort of like combinations. Linares took a step back and waved him forward. Uh, he just didn't seem to hurt him at all. And, and you know, Martin's, Martin's spoken on the pod before and saying that people only do that when they're hurt to show that they're not hurt as sort of like a, you know, um, reverse psychology almost. But but you could tell that Lares was just soaking him up. And he didn't... You know, the only person that looked in any trouble from the punch power was Crawler, at, you know, at certain yeah. points in that fight. But Lares has been in with guys like Mikey Garcia. The, the level of sparring Lares has had in his career, you know... Crawler's not going to throw anything that's going to surprise him. And that's why it's a safe bet for a rematch. You get 1.25 million. You know, that's that for that weight, that's good money. You haven't had to take that much of a risk. You leave with all the, you leave with all the toys, basically. You know, you get all the belts, all the accolades. And then you look to cash out, maybe against the Robert Easter Jr. You know, that's where you, I mean, passing the torch. People forget this. For older boxers, the biggest money you can make is passing the torch. So basically, you go, look, I'm the old fighter. Here's the next star in the division. If I lose to him, I'll just put him over. We all make a good payday out of this. Lovely. So and the question I have, therefore, is um, Linares, is that, the, at the, this point, how old is Linares? Oh, no. So one of them was 31. I think that's Crawler. I think Linares was 33. Right. So he hasn't got many years left. Has he... 
is that the best he can hope for now? Just a rematch of Crollo? I mean, aside from passing the torch, like you've kind of intimated there, is, is there nothing, nowhere else he can go in that division? Is there not? I can, is, reel, off, I can reel off the names. Mikey Garcia, probably a fight you don't want. That, that he can, that in your opinion, he can achieve though. Oh, that he can the limited beat. time that he has left, yeah. Oh, no, fights that he can have or fights that he can win. Funs, let's just say you were his manager, for example, and you were finding what he wants, what he can achieve. Let's, let's say that the rematch of Crawler is a given, so he's yeah. going to make the money out of that. Yep. And then he says, right, I'm going to retire in about two years, so I've got about three or four more fights. What is the maximum he can achieve if we take the next fight as the Crawler rematch and the last fight is the passing the torch fight. Let's just say, for example, so, what's the most that he can achieve look, before that? Well, time? well, I think it's a bit more subtle. So you'd fight Crawler. Manchester now loves you because you've beaten this guy twice. You'd fight Flanagan, right? You'd call out Flanagan and say, "Put your WBO belt up on the for, put it on the line against my belts. Clean up in Britain, which he could do next year. You'd, and you'd, then at that point, you'd back Linares against Flanagan. I think so. Yeah, he's 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 too clever. You know, regular listeners know I tend to give Northern boxers a hard time, with the exception of Tyrone Nurse. Tyrone Nurse is the only Northern boxer I can think of. Actually, throw in Dave Allen as well, who boxes in multiple dimensions. And what I mean by that is, you know, the head movement is front, back, side to side, up and down. You know, Nurse can do that. He can move in different directions. He can pivot. And he has all of these skillful elements. Most boxers from up north are limited. You know, high guard, very passive defense, and they rely on hitting hard to get through. Against someone like Linares, who boxes in so many different dimensions, it's very hard to to win against that style. And he'll know that from having, you know, fought Crawler and knowing that Crawler is more or less an equal of Flanagan. Why not take that fight? You know you can pretty much fill out the Manchester arena, so you know the money's good. And then afterwards, you then, you know, have a have a soft defense, a homecoming defense, and then look for a Robert Easter Jr. or a Dejan's latter cannon to then, you know, that's your cash-out fight. Okay. Um, we should probably touch on Crawler as well. Where does he go from here, um, aside from it looks like he, he would want want a rematch with the Linares? It's certainly sort of... Well, he I don't remember him saying it specifically, but you, you'd assume that the money's going to take him back to that as well. Where does he go from here? Where does Eddie Hearn see him going from here, do you think? So in boxing, this is a reason why you make fights happen when the fans ask for them to happen. Because Flanagan versus Crawler as a unification fight would have been massive in this country. Equally as big, if not bigger than Linares versus Crawler. Um, whether it was arrogance on both sides, Warren and Hearn, or whether it was a foolish sense that Linares wasn't as good as we thought he was, I don't know. But that money-making opportunity is gone. These two will fight each other. It won't mean as much. And what we're hoping for out of that fight is, you know, we will find out who the best lightweight in Manchester is. I don't think Crawler needs anything else. To be honest, I'd avoid the Linares rematch. And I would, I'd focus my energies on Terry Flanagan. Um, maybe try and chase the Zlatan Cannon fight. I think Zlatan Cannon can be got at. He's not, you know, spectacular by any stretch of the imagination. And then, if you're crawler, you're then looking at your your pension fights as well. Where you know who am I going to pass the torch to? Just just quickly, you mentioned Zata Cannon in the um, passing the torch thing with Linares. Are you suggesting that Linares couldn't beat Zata Cannon, or uh, but but crawler could? 
both I think they both probably stand the same chance of beating him. He he's he's there to be got at, but I think with Lenares it's that was my belt. So that's the reason you'd go back after Zlatikanin to say that's my belt. If Zlatikanin is as good as you know you know the Heyman camp will tell you he is, then it's a great passing as a torch fight because then you've got the Zlatikanin versus Robert Easter Jr. You know, you got Heyman and kind of, you know, indirectly Mayweather against Adrian Broner's camp about billions, which is where Robert Easter, you know, comes from. So there's money in that fight. And remember, and I say this to people all the time, when you look at what fights should happen next, look where the money's coming. Yeah. It's all about where the money can be made. Yeah, I suppose it's pointless considering who's going to fight who, who's going to beat who. The, the fact is, which ones can make what the makes, most yeah, money? What makes most money. But the most important thing we need to take from this is it's another defeat for the Gallagher style. And I wish at some point someone would be honest enough to say Joe Gallagher's a trainer who can get you to maybe a European title. But he's so one-dimensional with his boxers that if you stop them throwing the left hook to the body, normally through throwing right uppercuts, what you end up then doing to these guys is you discourage them. And when that left hook to the body is gone, they don't really have much of an arsenal. And Liam Smith found that. If you see how many uppercuts he ate from Canelo, you know, repeat multiple uppercuts. <laughs> he stopped throwing the left hook to the body. And then what happened? He got stopped with the left hook to the body because he didn't have an answer. He didn't have a plan B. Okay, so um, Lenares Crawler. There we have the lowdown on that. But let's move on to the undercard, which featured one Conor Ben fighting, I don't know if you know this, Terry, but a certain Ross Jameson who was unbeaten. Although I will caveat that with the fact that he'd only had two fights. <laughs> this was his third one. Impressive. <laughs> um, so it's best not to discuss the technical components of Conor Ben. He's very much a work in progress. You know, a lot closer to the beginning than the end of the journey. And I know that fans will criticise Conor Ben and say he's only there because of his dad. And it's a valid point. But can, can we all remember, this is one of the few times you get to see a boxer grow yeah. all the stuff boxers go through in the shadows that you don't normally see with Conor Ben you're going to see so whether he succeeds or fails you get to follow this journey it's almost like reality TV watching what Conor Ben's getting up to I wish him all the best but he is probably in the hardest of all proving grounds because he's not going to have a chance to make mistakes on that basis um, does he make comparatively to someone in the stage of the career that he's at right now does he make a lot of money? I mean, he's on TV a lot. Now, I don't suppose he's making millions or even maybe tens of thousands, but does, from someone who's fighting in, say, small hall shows, carving their career out, is he making more money? What is it, you know, what is he getting out of this? Is it financial or is it purely just exposure for those to cash out for future fights? It's exposure. I wouldn't be surprised if he's salaried at, ma at Matchroom. That wouldn't surprise me at all where he doesn't have to sell tickets, he's on a salary or some kind of retainer and he fights a certain number of fights a year. Like with all promoters, you invest in Conor Ben, you invest in bringing up his profile in the hope that you can get him to fight people at 140, maybe 135 if he can boil down and then you make your money at the back end. So right now, we're in the investment period. You know, Build awareness, build interest and build engagement before then you know, looking to really exploit him economically. So, I mean, I, I personally, we won't talk too much about it because I, th I think it was, it was just lining up a bump into fight. This Ross Jameson, I, I have no idea about his 
and you Bellin, who wasn't, he's done anything about his amateur career. He's 27. It's his third fight and he loses to Conor Ben. But on Conor Ben specifically, I haven't watched that much of him, but I certainly thought from, I watched his first fight. Um, I can't remember what undercard that was on, to be honest, but, um, I watched that first fight and I, and I've watched a fight, I think his third fight or something like that, and then I've watched this fight. And I thought he, he has come on somewhat. He's learned to at least, not he was it was like he was milling the first time he fought um but he did take some unnecessary shots from from jameson but he knew who he was fighting i guess so you're fighting someone you know you're meant to beat you'll take a few more risks than you would otherwise the guy's training with o'hara davis and he's training with ricky burns you know the camp they have is reasonably strong and i'm sure they're having a move around sparring around the country as well so he gets the quality sparring. So there's not much more you can ask. You know, you've got Ahara Davis, who I think, you know, if he does move up to 140 and fights Tyrone Nurse, he'll become a nationally recognized fighter. I think the guy is something special. You know, he has the strange physiology where he has impossibly long arms. But the thing is, he throws such unusual shots that it's hard to prepare for him. And it's hard to prepare for how hard he punches. So I've seen O'Hara Davis up close sparring some of my guys and he's he's hurtful. He's hurtful. If, if that's how Conor Ben's learning to survive in the ring, he's getting the best education there is. Um, I'd pose a question as to whether, you know, you'd rather he was learning his trade in the States maybe where there's more variety, you're exposed to different styles and maybe he could have learned some, you know, a different repertoire of tricks and shots and so forth. But we are where we are and, you know, let's get behind him because this will be an interesting story in terms of can Matchroom take a fighter from zero, absolute zero, and make them a champion? What, um, what is the best, biggest fight we can hope for um, later down the line with Conor Ben or is this, or is that a question that's sort of like yet to be decided given the amount of time that he's got still to develop? Um, the guys you'd expect Conor Ben to be fighting are probably mostly still in the amateurs now. And they're, they're earning their stripes that way. Um, you know, you're looking at in the 140 division. Would he fight a Pat McCormack if he turned over? Maybe. Luke McCormack if he turned over. They're all, you know, GB boxers. Are they going to turn over? We don't know. In the UK, you could feed him to a Willie Limond at some point down the line. You could feed him, you know, into a, a fight with Jack Cattrall a year, year and a half down the line. There, there, there are options. You know, there are 140 guys in this country who may never break world level, but they'll all congregate around that British European level. And Conor Ben could be mixing with those. You know, depending on how his progress goes within a year, year and a half. And just quickly then, uh, one final thing. Do you foresee Conor Ben being world level at some stage? At this, uh, If you had to make a call at this early time? I want him to be. The guy's a nice guy. I know him personally. He's a really, really nice guy. That doesn't get you far in boxing. But, you know, it's in the blood. He's raised in the culture. He's raised in that you go into the trenches and you never leave. You know, he gets that from his dad. So I want him to be world champion. But we haven't seen anything in a performance yet because he hasn't been tested. You have, for me, I don't think you can say someone's a champion until they're tested. Right. You know, when you face that test, it's, it's like Joshua. We accept Joshua as a champion, but we don't believe he's a champion because he hasn't had that test. 
where we've had to sort of, whoa, can he come back from this? Okay, um, moving on, we have the the only other car, the only other fight that I think was worth talking about. Perhaps you may think differently, the audience may think differently, <laughs> but Callum Johnson versus Shapepo. Um, this is the only one that I really saw um, for any great length of time outside of the crawler. Um, like I said, I did see some of the Ben stuff and it was fairly good, but all I saw was Johnson versus a bit of a bum, if I'm honest. Um, it's always, always, it's always harsh to call boxers bums, but this is the guy who had barely fought out of Africa, maybe fought out of, out of Africa once. And that was to fight Arthur Abraham in pretty much the same role he performed for Callum Johnson. Make a fighter look good, build it up for other opportunities. Um, I thought Callum Johnson made hard work of the guy. There was a, a lack of discipline in what Callum Johnson was doing. I don't think he had enough control over his opponent. So if you're watching Shihepo, it was just a jab, dip, shoot straight forward just to shut the distance down and then start holding. So can you can you answer for me what difference it would make? Uh, I don't. I'm not suggesting anything by asking the question. It's just purely a question. What difference it makes to me uh, if I am a boxer who's only fought in Africa and then I taken out of Africa? Is it is it something just the travelling or who are you going to spar? Um, so it's a difference in style that he's having to deal with. Well, it's 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 levels. So. You can beat 32 people in Africa, but these guys wouldn't have left the continent either. And while Africa produces some great champions, but you, Callum Johnson was in the GB setup. You know, he's been in the best training facility in the world for a few years. He won Commonwealth gold. The guy, the guy was clearly a different level. Um, Shehepa, for, for all his limitations, was quite wily in there. For, for the time he had energy, he was wily enough to shut the distance down and eliminate Johnson's power punch until he got too tired and just ate that horrible right hand, which basically put him to sleep. Well, I, I think he was a bit tired before that, just because it, well, he had a point deducted, didn't he, for holding? And that's all he did, just hung on to him. Yeah, and, and you know... The, dear life. So, so, I thought that was a bit harsh, to be honest with you, because we let some people hold. Klitschko has held far more than that in yeah. most of his fights and never had a point deducted. Yeah, I'm, to be honest, what I found a bit confusing was that he was willing to de deduct a point then, but then the same level of holding continued and he didn't deduct any more. So, so I felt like it was either one or the other. You should be more consistent with those point deductions. Or let it go. Or just let it go, yeah. And it, it would have been better for Johnson had he let it go because you have to learn to deal with guys like that because there are guys in the game who are like that. Your Sakio Beakers, for example who are just horrible and they don't you never look good fighting them but you have to learn how to get through those fights and luckily Callum Johnson did so i suppose the most logical question is where can Callum Johnson go next do you think um you got the commonwealth belt now so we probably want to consolidate the british and the commonwealth so he probably would be looking to fight someone like a Hosea Burton who was also on the card so I wouldn't be surprised if we see that further down the line. Um, Johnson probably should have been at British level a long time ago, but he's, you know, lack of activity for various reasons. He hasn't been. I don't know. Uh, you know, two limited guys. I think they're both trained by Gallagher fighting each other. It's hard to generate any interest. You know, if one of them fights Anthony Yard, I might garner some interest for the fight. But at 175, I think we're struggling in this country to identify and nurture the right kind of talent. 
But on the upside, guys like Josh Boatze, um, Umar Sadiq, shout out to Umar Sadiq. These young guys are coming through. So in the next couple of years, I think 175 will be quite interesting. Right, you mentioned Hosea Burton in that last um, ex- explanation of who Callum Johnson could fight next. You mentioned he was on the undercard, which he was. We're not going to talk about him. Uh, that was uh, something that I didn't necessarily see. So all those people that are going to shout at the things, oh, for God's sake, I want to hear about Hosea Burton. You're not going to hear about him. But you can give us a lowdown on the Ryder Arnfield fight, the turgid car park-esque uh, fight. Uh, how many chances does John Ryder need? I have no personal issue with John Ryder. I think in terms of tools, style, skill set, he's, he's really, really good. But there's something about him where he's not a killer. And in professional boxing, you have to be a killer. When you know you have the measure of someone, you've got to be in there not just to outbox him, but to to take him out. And you watch Ryder and he's always hesitant. It's like he doesn't trust himself and he doesn't trust his technique. And, you know, people say the scorecards were wrong. But the truth is, Anfield came in with a plan and went, I'm just going to keep this long. Ryder's not going to like it. I'm going to keep working off my long shots and stifle him where I can, you know. But Ryder falls into the same trap Liam Smith fell into against Canelo where it seems he can do one thing or another. So he can either move his head and do nothing or he can punch and do nothing. He can't seem to move his head and punch in sequence. So I don't know how you fix that because he's talented. And it's frustrating because you look at a guy like John Ryder and you go, you do everything I wish I could do in the ring. But you don't have that mentality to to really wipe someone out. And you saw that in his fight with Billy Joe Saunders where he gave Billy Joe Saunders at least the first six rounds comfortably before then trying to win the fight back. But if I'm being honest, I think Eddie's probably lost patience with John Ryder and John Ryder will now just be someone you feed to other people to make them look good. I, you know, Carl Frost tried to tell me that they're above British level. I don't think either of those two is above British level at the moment, and I think Langford probably beats both of them. In fairness, if you're going to compare, if if I mean, just I've got nothing, no reason to defend him at all. But if you're going to sort of castigate somebody, it shouldn't be for losing to Billy Joe, <laughs> like surrendering six rounds to Billy Joe, because he's a, he's a quality boxer, to be fair, isn't he? But at the time that they fought. Ryder was at least a 50-50 prospect in that fight, if not maybe a slight favourite. There were a lot of things you saw in Ryder where you thought he'll give Billy Joe trouble. He didn't. Right, uh, have you got anything else to add to that night of boxing? I thought it was quite good that it wasn't pay-per-view. I mean, alright, it probably couldn't have been, but I still, you know, I was still happy that I thought I'm not going to watch it. Then I realised that it was on normal fight night on Sky and... I think Eddie's kicking himself. That was a that was a pay per view quality main event. Maybe not the card itself, but you know we've seen worse on pay per view. Yes, we? we we've definitely seen worse. That was a fight where you saw two people at the top of their division fighting it out. It was That's a cracking fight. It was a cracking fight, I, I and you would have had no issue it. paying money to see that. Mm. Um, which, before anyone or probably Martin listening to this. <laughs> says anything which of course you are with your sky subscription but we mean additionally so martin you can just stop smashing up your mp3 player okay so let's move on to some news um so i I think i'm just racking my brains here i think you might have called this before fury klitschko off yeah i'll call this in june (laughs) 
I take great pride. I take great pride in this, not because of what's happened to Tyson, which actually devastates me, but because. And for all you fans out there who claim to be the experts and mugs, here's what you need to look at when you look at a fight. Who does it make sense for? The rematch made no sense for Fury because he beat Klitschko so decisively that the second fight was only going to go one way. How do you get yourself motivated for that? You can't. You know, I think Tyson Fury said it best himself where he said, once you climb the mountain, there's only one way to go and that's down. And it was probably, it probably came too quickly for him. But I always got the sense from talking to people close to the Fury camp that he only ever wanted to beat Klitschko, beat Wilder, beat Joshua and retire. That's uh, really what he right, wanted to do. Let's just pad this out slightly because um, we jumped straight in. The Right, so Fury Klitschko, which was arranged for back in October, I can't remember, was it 26, 29, something like that? Um, that was that was the the current rematch date, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, because there was one before that. Right, yeah, yeah, which was like July, July the 9th, wasn't yeah. it? Um, right, so that's now off, and it's off because Fury has been deemed medically unfit to box? Yes. What do we think that's to do with so, that? So, so, no, there was an interview last night from IFL, and Peter Fury broke it down. I'll summarise what Peter Fury said. He said, look, my nephew Tyson Fury did the impossible, did what no other British boxer has done in a long time and defeated Vladimir Klitschko, climbed the mountain and all Tyson wanted was to come back to the UK and see his name, you know, in a positive light. Here you go. Here's a man who's done great things for his community, the traveler community, for his country, Great Britain. He wanted that little bit of praise to go well done. And instead, he came back to a media storm where they immediately tried to sabotage him. So Tyson's never had a chance to celebrate being, you know, one of the British heavyweight greats, which he will be undoubtedly. So, so, well, just to jump in there, just to sort of like uh, play devil's advocate here, that is partly to do with the attitudes that he has, but the choice he makes to demonstrate those attitudes to an audience, does it not? Um, so I always say there are two elements in this. So when you interview someone, the interviewer himself has a responsibility to say, look, I don't think we want to publish that comment because I know you're saying it, but what you're saying between us two is one thing. So you look at PR, basically, that has a general... You think well, they yes. have some sort of responsibility to consider the PR ramifications? Well, well, if I'm interviewing someone, for example, and they say something which I don't think will play well with my audience, I'll say to them, look, I, I don't want to put it out there because there are these risks. If you want me to put it out there, fine, but I need to let you know that there are these risks and I'm not going to sabotage you. If you're going to sabotage your own future, that's up to you, but here you go. Um, we have the same thing if you go back to Prince Patel's debut where Coogan Cassius had the chance to actually stop the interview and go, I'm not putting that out because that's going to ruin your career. But he chose to chase the views in the same way that I think it was the Daily Mail. They interviewed Tyson Fury. They chose the controversy. They chose to generate clicks, purchases via the controversy. And look, Tyson, he doesn't have a PR machine around him. He... The one thing we like about him is there's a realness to him. You know, he could be your next door neighbor, but he just happens to be world champion and pretty damn good at what he does. Someone needed to protect him. 
and no one protected him. People say, oh, he's a maverick. He's that. He's, he's that. There are people he listens to. And they should have said, Tyson, this can't go out. And someone should have done that. And he's paid a heavy price because I don't believe for one second Fury's a racist. I don't believe he's a homophobe. I think he will say things without thinking. And that's different. And people don't understand this because we live in a world now where people quite like being offended. You know, social media allows you to be offended. And if you're not part of that wave of offense, somehow you're the problem. So the boxing communities let Tyson get crucified. And I'm upset for him because I've said this on the show before. Mental health in boxing is important because there's very little in life that takes you so high and takes you so low as boxing does. I was watching a video the other day, Andy, and it was about Chris Cyborg, you know, the, the Brazilian MMA lady. Right, okay. And I'm, not, she, I'm not familiar with her, yeah, I must be honest. But, but she was trying to make weight. And if anyone's my friend on Facebook, you'll see this video. I'll post it up tonight. And she's trying to make weight. And I'm watching how she's broken, like emotionally broken. This is a woman who can fight for a living. And she's emotionally broken by trying to make that weight. But once you win the fight, you go from that to here. Think what that must do to you psychologically. Just those, those, those vast gaps in highs and lows. So, you know, I do say that. I say as a boxing community, this is important. And it's not just Tyson Fury. What's going to happen to AJ if he loses two in a row and he's not the prospect we thought he was? You know, who's going to look after him? You know, who's going to look after Eubank Jr. when Golovkin spanks him from one side of the ring to the other? These are all important considerations because we care about boxers as they climb the rungs of the ladder, as they ascend the mountain, we care about them. As soon as they start to fall significantly, we forget who they are and we focus on whoever's climbing the mountain next. I, I, I would have to agree with that. Yeah, definitely. Because um, one, so, one thing I did want to add is the one person who should really be getting on at the Furies and saying, I will help you in any way possible is Eddie Hearn. Because if Tyson Fury does not box again, that is 50 to 60 million quid gone. Number one. Number two, even more worrying, that then means your only British super fight is with David Hay. And I say good luck with that. Um, what, why do you think these, what, what are these medical reasons they've got? Are they mental? It's depression. So I've, I've had some communication with people in the camp without necessarily being directly involved in the camp. The guy wasn't really training. He wasn't trying to cut weight. He wasn't motivated in the gym and hasn't been for a while. That's the issue here. Like he can't get himself up for a rematch with Klitschko because he's saying to himself quite rightly, the fuck am I doing this for? Who am I doing this for? Okay, again, to play devil's advocate, it's his responsibility to take that fight. Otherwise, he shouldn't have signed up for the um, deal, the terms in the first place, which was, I want a rematch if I lose. Klitschko, that being. Do you have any sympathy for that argument? No, because... Klitschko's notorious, well, both Klitschko's are notorious for what, what, what I described as their slave contracts, where to fight them, you have to agree to these onerous terms. I, I genuinely think Klitschko and Fury were in the, let's just fight once and be done with it. It just so happens Fury won. And now Vladimir's like, shit, what do I do? Because he's wasted a year of his career as well. 
And he's the wrong side of 40 to be wasting a year of his career. So now we're in that position where, you know, no one's come out of this smelling of roses. And the best solution, as I said before, would have been for Vladimir to say, here, yeah, you were meant to get 5 million for the fight. I will give you 2.5 million. You go your way. I'll go my way. And everyone would have been happy at this point because the fight Klitschko once is the Joshua fight. Why? As I said earlier, it's a passing the torch fight. Um, so at this point, I feel like it's a viable question to ask. Is there a possibility that Fury could get stripped of his current belts? Because he's not, I mean, I feel like they've given him leniency on the basis that he's got this, you know, he's had these stallings and he's had these reasons for not fighting. But we're now a year down the line. There's not going to be a fight within 12, maybe 15 months. When when do those belts become taken get taken away from him? If we unpick it and look at yourself as a governing body, you'd want to take the belts off Fury just to generate revenue. But everyone knows Fury's still the main man. He's he's the lineal champion. And, and no one is credible until they beat Tyson Fury. So my proposal would naturally be you make him a champion in recess. And as soon as he's ready and willing to fight, he then becomes mandatory for all the belts that he had. And he then it's on him. Do you want to fight these mandatories or not? Um, how long would it take Klitschko? Let's just say, um, for example, I don't know how the timeline's going to work, but let's just say Tyson Fury's fit to fight again within six months, right? The six months comes around and they do what you, you've said about the belts. But let's say... Um, Klitschko's got back into the circle again, maybe had a fight against whoever. How long would it take before Klitschko was the mandatory for one of those belts? And so then we have the whole thing again with the Fury Klitschko. So at the moment, I don't think Vladimir Klitschko's ranked mandatory for any of the belts. I think once they resolve the issue regarding this fight, and this fight is like, once the contract's voided, and so no one is no one's bound by the contract anymore, I would expect the WBC to put Vladimir Klitschko quite high up in the rankings. I would also expect the WBO being European and also being heavily lobbied by the Klitschkos to put him high up there. Which, of course, Fury currently has, the WBO. Yes, and Huey Fury is working his way up those rankings as well. Um, in terms of the IBF, they couldn't put him as mandatory because they've committed to Joseph Parker. Um and you wouldn't but, want to move Pruneff or Hader. But that will happen in January, right? January, February time. Maybe even November. Right. But then after that, uh, well, mind you, there wouldn't be a mandatory for another year then, would there? Uh, so, look, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, the IBF tend to have 90-day cycles. So in a typical year, mandatory, voluntary, mandatory, voluntary. You, but, can, you can go mandatory twice and then have a couple of voluntaries. Um... So what you're basically looking at is fighting Parker, choosing someone else to fight, then fighting David Hay. If you're Anthony Joshua, IBF champion. So are we the, sort of the point of the question, we've kind of got to in a roundabout way, but specifically, do you foresee us having to face another Klitschko Fury, you know, match up debacle, if you like? I think in the next year, I think Klitschko would vacate rather than fight Fury. But what about if Fury's the holder? Do you think 
Fury, oh, you think Fury would vacate rather than fight Klitschko? No, either of us, I think Fury will fight anyone. But if if you if you take Fury, so why doesn't he fight Klitschko now? Because he can't. He's not medically that. So you don't fight. think you don't think it's because he's got the depression because he can't motivate himself. You don't think it's because of Klitschko? No. You think it's? Oh no, it, it's it's the British boxing public. Carl Frampton has an MBE. He hasn't climbed the mountain that Tyson Fury did. You know, admittedly, he hasn't, you know, had the PR debacles that Tyson's had. You know, um, there's a next logical question, which, um, I'm assuming, you know, Tartan Meobold, one of our favorite fans and <laughs> listeners, is going to ask in terms of, well, yeah, let's, would, what, this, would this have been any different? Yeah. Um, let's tackle that now then. So if, if, what do you think from Tartan Meobold? Uh, you can reach him at, well, you can't reach him. He's a, he's a. He's dancing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's coming with a question. Um, how do you think Fury's career would have, the traje- trajectory of it w- would have been were he to have been under Eddie Hearn's guidance slash management? He'd be fighting Matt Skelton right now, if I'm being honest with you. I, I don't think Eddie would have rushed him the way that Tyson wanted to be rushed. Tyson's belief for a long time he could beat Vladimir Klitschko. I don't think Eddie would have taken that risk. So kudos to Mick Hennessy for taking that risk and for Frank Warren as well for tapping into that recently. But I think with Eddie Hearn, Eddie would have had far more control over the things that Tyson said. Or if not the things that Tyson said, he would have vetted what was published. So there would have been a lot of stuff that would have been left on an editor's desk, quite rightly too. Because Masham's a very tightly controlled machine. You don't step out of line and expect to stay there very long. But when you're Mick Hennessy and you need Tyson more than he needs you, you're more lenient over the things that he does. Because someone should have said to him, look, you're world champion. This is going to come out in the media at some point. You need to diffuse it. So he doesn't have people in his camp who can do that, who can say, look, get out there, get the message across, apologize Say it wasn't something that should have been published and you regret it deeply. Move on. Um, just to clear up something I just, um, has just occurred to me earlier when I said about the, um, Tyson, if it is indeed depression, what do you think it's down to? I also realized that, you know, depression is an illness and it doesn't necessarily have a one triggering factor. Um, but if that is the case, if he, if he is suffering with something like that, I and mean, obviously I, 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 but I really hope that we see him again soon because I, I I really enjoy him boxing, watching him box, and I want to see him fight uh, an elite level boxer again and and work them out. That's what I really yeah. want to see. So, so look, I'm going to summarize Tyson Fury over the last ten years. Here's a guy who wasn't respected in the amateurs because he's a traveler, and travelers aren't generally believed to be that good that they'll start, you know, winning national titles in the amateurs. So, him and Billy Joe Saunders broke a lot of barriers by doing that. And that's prejudice, isn't it? Yeah, it's just uh, cold-hearted uh, uh, prejudice. What are the reasons people use to sort of like keep that prejudice going? Oh, you know, look at these travellers. They're all flashing the ring. They bring their relatives who cause trouble. They're bad for the sport. You know, it's all very negative, which isn't true because they're good people, man. I've I, Every encounter I have with, that, with the traveller community, I've thoroughly enjoyed, got a lot of respect for a lot of their traditions and the way they do things. So... One would argue that's the reason Tyson didn't go to the Olympics in 2008, because they chose David Price over him. Price was kind of an old amateur, wasn't really that skillful, wasn't that good. 
but he fit the mold a lot better than Fury did. So Fury turned pro and he still had that prejudice because he's like, look, you know, I'm not loved in Britain. I'm going to box as if, you know, box out of Ireland for a bit. Still got the crap for being a traveler, got the crap for being a traveler. Then he started to beat people that people were, you know, that people respected, you know, and then look, he beats Klitschko and he still doesn't get that love. And all he's ever wanted is someone to go, Tyson, we love you. You're, you're a national treasure. You're a bit of an ass sometimes, but you're a national treasure. Why? Because you show up, you fight and you win. That's what he wanted. I think you could probably hope for a bit more of that. If he, if it was literally, he shows up, he fights, he goes home and he does the old, uh, Paul Scholes routine of, you know, comes up, he fights, or obviously in Paul Scholes' case, plays football, and goes home, and you don't hear anything from him. I think it's those, as we've covered, those misjudged dives into the media put out by whoever that keep him in that negative light and don't allow his boxing to do the, the positive PR for him. So he has a problem because he hasn't got a PR machine behind him like Matchroom does. So he has to actively court these outlets to keep his name out there. Which he doesn't have to do now, but back then he had to do. So he got strung up by the things that he said in the past. And with the Brits being a nation that notoriously hates winners, as soon as he won, because mm-hmm. remember, we didn't want him to win. If you remember, after the whole homophobic comments things came out, it was, well, we want Klitschko to knock him out. We want Vladimir to knock him out. We don't like Tyson Fury. We don't like Tyson Fury. Fury obviously, obviously not um, Tartin Mirbold because he's uh, he's a big fan. I know he is. You know, <laughs> not not sure Fury's a fan of his. If they think you know, he might have some words for him. <laughs> yeah. that, but he might like the Irish dancing. Don't know. Yeah, that's true. There's that. They've got that that love in them. Tyson's a very complex man, as we're now finding out. But I'm, my heart goes out to him because this isn't how we should be treating champions. It really isn't. There have been people who have said far less favourable things in the media. But the editor said, no, don't put it out. Yeah? Right, just moving on to other happenings in the uh, heavyweight division. You've got November the 26th. So, (laughs) at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, we know that Joshua's fighting on November the 26th, but we still don't know who's fighting. Is that right? So, no opponent's been announced. Um, There might be an announcement next week I don't know you know that the fury thing is probably throwing things up in the air you know so let's just let's just pause for a second and imagine we're Eddie Hearn what big fights has Joshua really got in him like like fights that will generate big money fights that mean something internationally as things stand in order of importance Tyson Fury is basically lineal champion has you know has two belts he's the guy you'd really want your guy to be fighting to validate him as a champion you've got Deontay Wilder who people believe would take Joshua to school would probably you know I mean some people say would destroy him and then that third slot could be absolutely anyone else hey more likely David Hay, especially from a British perspective, because that's another big domestic fight. That's a stadium fight. So Eddie wants these three fights to happen. Fury dropping out of the mix leaves two. Do you throw Vladimir Klitschko in? He's damaged goods at the moment. So Vladimir would need one or two fights to build up that fearsome reputation again. So that's not going to happen. From a financial perspective, 
which presumably after, depending on your priorities as a boxer, depending on Joshua's priorities as a boxer, is either going to be mostly concerned with legacy or mostly concerned with money. I don't know which one it is, but let's just say, let's just say at least one of those is important to him. The biggest money fight, surely at this point, is Wilder. Because it, yeah. because it's, it's transatlantic. Yes, but the problem with the Wilder fight is how are you going to convince the Americans Joshua's the A-side? How are you going to get Wilder to come over here? The fight's likely to happen in Vegas. It's it's a Vegas-type fight. So you're not going to get Wembley for that, right? So for, for Eddie Hearn's coffers, that is potentially 8 to 10 million quid gone. AJ will do well out of it. Eddie Hearn might get you know, a small fee for promoting it over here. But it's not the moneymaker that Eddie Hearn needs. Eddie Hearn needs Wilder to fight in the UK for it to be financially viable, which is why Eddie would prefer a Fury fight and a Hay fight, because the Wilder fight doesn't generate the same money for him. Yeah, fair one. Um, The only risk, obviously, if he fights Hay is that if he loses, then Joshua doesn't have any belts to sort of barter with, does he, in terms of... If it was, you'd, you'd suspect that if he fights Hay and Hay beats him, then can Joshua viably expect Wilder to still want to fight him? No. Once David Hay fights Joshua, and if Hay knocks him out, which is a possibility, let's not lie, it is a possibility. It's not like Joshua would move to being from being number one to being number two. He'd crash because then we'd say this guy had a padded record. He needs to fight all of these tough fighters to get back up to the top of the mountain. So Eddie knows that the risk isn't the difference between Joshua being involved in 20 million pound fights or 15 million pound fights. It's the difference between Joshua fighting at Wembley and Joshua fighting at the Wembley Arena. And there's a massive difference there. So he's, who, n- he's not likely to risk him. Who, so... Who is Josh? Who is Eddie Hearn going to get into fight in November? Because I, I, it's, it seems to me that there's only the only opponents he's got left are either more of the same. Into if you, especially if you consider his fight against Dillian White, like that's probably I'd say the most the, the best fighter he's fought up to up to this point. The only fighters that, that are left above that sort of level are all right, arguably Chisora, but but other than that. They're all world elite levels that could cause him problems. And that, that seems out of line with Eddie Hearn's tactic. So we're in the middle of what I call the Joshua paradox, where if, if you're a man who's confident he'll beat Anthony Joshua, you'll fight him right now. Before he gets more experience, before he gets seasoned, you'll fight him right now. Hand him that first loss, take the belt, go off and do your own thing. Eddie Hearn knows that. So he keeps guys like David Hay out of the discussion tries to sabotage their profile whenever he can, which is what he did with Fury as well. Now, if you can't beat Joshua, and a lot of boxers know they can't beat Joshua, you're going to go, right, I saw what he did to Dominic Brazil. I won life-changing money to take that life-changing beating. And that's the problem. It's expensive to have Joshua fighting these guys it's expensive you're paying Charles Martin 5.8 million dollars you're paying Dominic Brazil 4 million dollars you know the next guy knows these numbers it's like well I'm better than both of them you know Chisora's like well if you're paying Charles Martin 5.8 or whatever it was I want that money because I'm better than Charles Martin I'll beat Charles Martin now 
But Eddie doesn't have limitless funds. He had to get that belt in order to generate the opportunities. Now, <laughs> but then he's not taking making the most of those opportunities now. No, he's not. <laughs> Look, this could theoretically happen. Wilder could say, "I'm not fighting Joshua. I'll fight Hay and I'll fight Fury, and that's me done." Hay could say, "I'm not fighting Joshua. I'll fight Deontay Wilder, fight Lewis Ortiz, maybe fight Shannon Briggs for a laugh, and I'm done." And suddenly. You know, the Aaron Pryor syndrome comes where Joshua's this heavyweight who went his whole career and having never fought the best in the division. I guess, which I suppose really isn't Eddie Hearn's concern as long as he can generate money. But can he continue making money from these fights where he's not, where Joshua's not against... I mean, look, we watched David Hay fight, two comeback fights against miserable opponents and and they were big big money-making, generating exercises. But, Can this continue to happen with with Joshua? But, but look at David. David's gone back to the drawing board now, and he's gone, I can't risk that again. Yeah, yeah, because, I, yeah. Yeah, he's gone back to the because drawing it's, board. Because it's almost... You've seen it. We played a clip on this podcast. It's almost in the mainstream media now that, hey, it's been taking easy fights. And Joshua got it as well. I saw the league of their own thing. Joshua's getting it as well. All of these guys are getting it because as fans... People can go to BoxRec, they can go to YouTube and go, look, you're fighting bums. You can't sell us bullshit anymore. So so Eddie Hearn run, runs a massive risk that if he's not flexible in what he does, he might miss the Wilder fight, he might miss the Fury fight, and he might miss the Hay fight. So this Joshua paradox you're talking about, it seems to exist in Eddie Hearn's head more than anything else, doesn't it? Well, so Eddie has two options. You risk your fighter against the best now, and maybe he loses, but you can rebuild him. Or you keep paying people inordinate amounts of money to come over and fall down for it. it neither of which is palatable to Eddie Hearn. And yeah, to right. be honest, as the fans, we just want Joshua to fight people. We're like, oh, that's going to be tough. Let's see what he's made of. And we, but we we know as boxing fans, even casuals know um, when when someone is fighting Joshua Hay, if they're a decent fighter or not. I mean, at the very least, you know when it's. Anthony Joshua versus Johnson B. Johnson. And you're like, who the hell is that? You know, that when, you, when it's those sort of scenarios, you're like, right, okay, it's another easy easy two or three round fight for, for Joshua. So uh, the, essentially, I suppose the question is, how long is Joshua marketable for? Is it just... Because uh, surely, eventually, even if you are IBF champion, if, you tried to, if Eddie Hearn tried to set up three more fights with... Briazil type characters, people are going to go, can't be bothered with this. What's the point of watching that crap? But the thing is, people still go because Eddie Hearn makes good events. So it's a good night out, but you just will know that this shit's not credible anymore. So it won't, but it's, surely that will have a ramification on the amount of money it generates. Well, so Joshua fights right now, I reckon, gross around between seven and eight million. Just all, all the money in the pot. About seven or eight million. Um, you can probably take out a little bit for all the different people's licensing and royalty fees. And that leaves a set amount. Joshua gets money, you know, his image rights will get money. Basically, the cake slices very thinly at some points. So what Eddie does is Eddie says, these are my tickover. It's just nice, nice, good cash flow for me to fund my other ventures. What he wants is the Wembley fight. He wants at least two or three Wembley fights for Joshua. You know, fights where it's so big, Andy, that we're watching it in a cinema. 
you know, like in the like in the seventies, you know, everyone wants to watch it together, but you know, Wembley is only so big, so everyone watches it in a cinema or you watch it in a bar, but everyone's watching this fight. I mean, it's the talk of the town. Yes. Like Frotch Groves too. But, but he's not going to do that unless he takes on someone like Hay. And do do you think that Eddie Hearn sees the risk that that you and Martin have um, in the past mentioned? Yep, he does. So what does he do? And this is the paradox, yeah? They wait for Hay to get old. <laughs> they wait for Hay to get old. They they fabricate drugs charges against Fury. You know, they pray Deontay Wilder heals up. And then what happens is you fight Wilder, then you come back and go, we're fighting old David Hay. And look, we've discredited Fury so much, we're going to offer him so little money, he won't take the fight. Now he's ducking us. How how long has Hay got before he's, as you say, old? Well, yes, old. Too well, old. So, so David Hay doesn't have many boxing miles on the clock. Let's be clear about this. He's had under 30 fights, and all but a handful of them have gone the distance. So he doesn't have many miles on him physically, in terms of punches he's taken so his punch resistance should be quite high so you'd say he can definitely get to 37 38 and then after that point i don't know if the body will hold together david's 36 he'd still have to be ducking for at least two years wouldn't he so and and so so, and so i say to boxing fans and i say to the twitter universe how long are you going to let this guy keep doing this how long are you going to let eddie hearn keep telling you that joshua's time will come the guy's had the belt now for a large chunk of 2016 and we haven't seen that belt tested you know at some point as fans we need to make that decision that says i'm not going to be part of this anymore you know for boxing to be credible in this country for us to become the mecca of boxing to the world i genuinely think we need to operate with a clear conscience and that means we make the interesting fights happen and you you can't really poo-poo what Eddie's doing because Eddie's put Brooklyn with Golovkin didn't have to he's put you know he's put Linares and Crawler together he didn't have to you know, he's going to put Eubank in with Golovkin or you know all of these fights that Eddie's trying to make because he understands now that his revenue model needs super fights but it also needs big fights to keep the money ticking over Um. okay just quickly then I think we spent enough time on this who is your best guess for who Joshua fights on November the 26th. It'll be against my better judgment, but I have a feeling it'll be Parker. So I suspect it'll be Joseph Parker on the 26th. That'll be the mandatory, right? Yeah, get the mandatory out of the way, and then you can have a big money voluntary afterwards. Okay. Right, let's move on. We don't have much more to cover. Um, I have written down something that you've you spoke to me about before the show, but I'm a, as ignorant as anyone else listening to this podcast, which would be PBC cracks in the empire. Um, Fill me in. So the professional boxing championship was Al Heyman's idea. And what Al Heyman wanted to do was assemble a stable of the best boxers and have regular shows on regular TV. So this wasn't good. These weren't going to be pay-per-view fights. You know, you you know. So if we just take America, you could have watched one on NBC, CBS, Fox, yeah. Spike. Um, with the idea that with a massive viewership, you can sell very expensive advertising, which funds it. Yes. Just as good, if not better, than pay per view. Well, so 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 there, there were two levels to it. Al Heyman had seen what was happening in the UK, where events were almost paying for themselves with gate receipts. If that makes sense. So a Joshua fight at the O2, even without pay-per-view, would pay for itself. 
is viable economically. Now, I wanted to bring that model with also increase, increasing national exposure through having the same guys boxing on national TV and then selling the advertising almost as your profit stream. So the advertising would have been the profit stream. Now, the American market is completely different to the UK market. You know, we're a small enough country that Anthony Crawler from Manchester matters to fans in London every bit as much as he matters to fans in Salford. Same thing with Callum Smith, same thing with Ricky Burns. You know, we can all get behind them because the country is small enough, we can go to Glasgow. You know, if if there's a big fight in Cardiff, as it will be, you know, I'm sure at some point next year, because Eddie Hearn loves, you know, Cardiff, we'd all get on a train to go there, get a hotel. It's not a big deal for us. It's a couple of hours travel. America is such a big country that it doesn't work that way. They have a few trans, almost pan-national stars, we'll call them. So someone like a Canelo is big in the United States. Someone like a Terence Crawford isn't big in the United States. He's big in Nebraska and he's big in the boxing community. So Al's misread the market. And what it meant was his initial wave of signing up fighters and paying them really generous purses is coming to backfire on him a little bit now because he's put all that money out without necessarily making it back in. Gate sales have been low. Pay-per-view sales in the wider boxing market have been down. You know, TV viewerships down. Yeah, you know, look, in the States, I think Golovkin Brook peaked at about a million, a million one in a country of 350 million. Yeah. That's not great. Um, You know, Mayweather did more pay-per-view buys for Pacquiao than that. So... Although you kind of expect that, don't you, given the amount of history there was in that fight? Yes, but, you know, you're getting a fight for free. Yeah, well, I suppose that's true, yeah. And yeah. and so people struggled with that. Like, 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 so, so the model's falling apart because there isn't a way of generating boxing revenue because Al Heyman never did what Eddie Hearn did. He never built hometown stars and focused them in their target demographics. So let's take Adrian Brown. Adrian Brown is from Ohio. I think he's from Cincinnati. They don't really build Adrian Broner in Cincinnati. They build him everywhere else, Vegas, D.C., without building him in Cincinnati. So who's going to come and watch him? Who's going to fill a 30,000 arena? People who know, I mean, the hometown hero. But you'd have thought that the arena capacity isn't directly linked to TV you know, ratings, would you? Because it wouldn't seem to make a great deal of sense that if you can't go to the fight or you don't, you know, I'm not going to travel... Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of whoever. I'm not going to travel seven hours in my car and I'm not even going to watch on TV either. So, so let's flip it around and go. The first, the first fight you watch, we'll call it, we'll call it Terence Crawford, Victor Postal in, in Omaha, Nebraska of all places. The arena's half full, right? You're a fan watching this going, this arena's half full. This isn't a big deal. Why are you going to watch the next one? You're not, are you? Because, you know, if you watch a fight like you did with Brooke Golovkin and you hear the noise and you see the crowd, you're like, these two guys are a big deal. I'm I'm interested. I'm engaged with this. You watch the next fight. So the viewership should go up based on that. So I think Heyman's struggle to translate the American market to a British model, which is the events should pay for themselves. So, so could, yeah. could, a, could a hybrid work in this country, do you think? Um, In what sense? Well, 
we get full stadia because of the way that it because of the way yeah. that the the like you say the logistics of it essentially so is the is the free tv viewership enough to compen- to, to to shift it across from pay-per-view on sky would would the same Al Heyman model work in this country? Is what I'm saying because we'd have full stadia, and you know there's enough of a, there's enough of a generate like generated interest to surely then have I don't know seven eight ten million people tuning in, which is what you get like hit shows like Game of Thrones. That they're about twelve so, ten million people so, so, an episode. So you know just traveling through history, you know Ben and Eubank were making seven figures in the early 90s and they were free to air um david hayes getting three million views on dave and still filling up the uh, the o2 arena so, so it could work it, it could work is it sustainable only if the fights you put on free to air tv mean something the problem you have is you can then use them as a dustbin that's the risk and this is what pbc did so pbc started to put crap cards on various channels so you know al Heyman advises so many boxers that he's trying to find homes for all of them so some of the cards ended up being shit and people say i'm not watching this so you, you can't sell it to advertisers you know what you want is fewer but stacked cards where the fights mean something even if it's just a uh a, a andre berto versus victor ortiz that fight's not taking either of those two anywhere, but it's a good fight to watch. It sounds, that on the card. it sounds to me like it was a failure of marketing as much as anything else. Oh, yes. he, he He's misread the market. So you look, the guy was on a $500 million war chest. And that was it was great when Mayweather was in the boxing game because Mayweather was worth more to boxing than what he took out of boxing. Because if you look, as soon as he stepped away from boxing, it's deflated. There's no real global stars mm, in boxing. True, yeah. So Al Heyman has a choice. You you stop what you're doing and go, I'm going to hold fire you, you, and focus on building stars. Uh, so I'm going to take these guys that I have, these Danny Garcias. The, I don't know if he still advises Deontay Wilder, but all of these guys, I'm going to take them and I'm going to build them in specific markets. So Danny Garcia, I'm going to build in New York. He's going to be New York's fighter. Um, Adrian Broner, He's going to be the Midwest's fighter, but definitely fighting out of Ohio. You know, we'll take him to Vegas every so often. We'll take him to Ohio every so often, but we'll build a constituency in a, in a large market that will pay. Andre Ward. I know he's not managed by Heyman, but you take something like an Andre Ward, make him big on the West Coast, out of Carson into Los Angeles. Why didn't he just do a WWE model, moving around the country, various points? You know, I don't, he tried that, but. No one has a reason. Like, I have no real reason to to be involved with Danny Garcia in Miami because he only fights two or three times a year. If I'm a wrestling fan, I see Triple H once a week. Right. So I'm yeah. willing to go and watch yeah, Triple okay. H live because I've seen him perform so often and he hasn't let me down. So... He doesn't well, let anyone down. He's a top He's a top wrestler. Yeah, you know, a tweener. What do they call him? Yeah, tweeners. He's <laughs> not quite a heel, not quite a face. Um... So, so Heyman's in an interesting position and it'll be interesting because I know Al Heyman had plans to come into the UK because he sees the money that the UK is making and he's saying, well, if I can get my guys on shows there because he already has, what, Frampton, Selby and a few others. So he's got DeGale as well. He could put on a card of Heyman fighters 
try running it on ITV too. I don't imagine it costs that much to buy a three hour slot. You get him, you get the thing to start just after X Factor. So husbands have got the remote control back and they can watch that with their mates, have a few drinks. And that's when you start to pump those adverts down because you've got a captive audience. Will it work? We don't know. But I always had a sense that the David Hay Dave thing was an Al Heyman experiment because I know those two have a relationship. And it was like, what can we do with terrestrial TV? So let's see how it plays out because if it turns out Al Heyman's completely blown the 500 million, then everyone in boxing's in trouble because the average person is going to go through the floor because that 500 million kept purse inflation relatively high. So let's see. We'll see how it builds out over the next few months or so. We have a late submission to the questions uh, that I've just turned my phone on during the podcast being paused. Yes, that does happen. And I've just checked. And at Senior Tasty, Mick asks, I think I was going to ask, how the fuck is Terry O'Connor still a ref? This is the guy that um, refed the main event, Crawler versus Linares, last night. The eight-foot ginger fat guy that <laughs> that refs the um, that refs pretty much well a lot of main events. I've seen him a few times. You'd recognise him if you don't necessarily from my description of him. Over to you, Terry. Refing's hard, so if you need experience. You can't be a rookie ref in the main event because a lot of clever, subtle stuff is happening that you need to be looking out for. So, you know, what's happening in the clinches is someone having a few slight digs on, on the opponent's hip. All of these things. So someone like a Terry O'Connor, while he doesn't get it right all the time, it's the experience that he has to be able to spot certain things. I know people go, why is he always involved? But it's it's a role nobody wants. You know, there's a reason why ex-fighters don't bother becoming referees. It's just hard damn work. I give referees crap, but the only time I give them crap is when I think a fight should be stopped. Generally speaking, that and holding. You know, I don't I don't think refs police holding well enough. You know, they're never consistent. Either let them hold, and then our guy can do what he needs to do on the inside, or don't let them hold. But don't, don't flip and flop between the two. But in terms of Terry O'Connor, you know, I think he's better than Howard Foster. So... You know, you don't want Howard Foster in there. Okay, Terry, I know you're not going to like this, but I have an argue the inarguable for you. Now, it's not necessarily the most straightforward, inarguable uh, point, but you're still going to be lumbered with it, which is, the coming season will be the greatest season for heavyweight boxing that we've seen for at least the last 10 years. Go. Last Saturday, um, you had the Mr. Olympia bodybuilding contest where you saw a 52-year-old man called Kevin Lavrone walk on stage at 3.5% body fat, weighing 245 pounds. That's what Joshua weighs. You know, you have to ask yourself why these boxers don't get in that kind of shape. They all take the same sorts of substance and diet, you know. But having said that, we should be excited because if those guys can, you know, make that sort of weight, maybe our guys will stop being the fat guys nicking a living and they'll also slim down and we'll get some, some decent looking heavyweights. And, you know, maybe Joshua can release a workout video for these heavyweights to help him get to his level of physical conditioning because that will truly make it exciting for heavyweight boxing next season. So you retreated to a bumper edition of Argue and Arguable there and Terry went on for 40 seconds. Although it was more a question or, well, it was it was sort of telling us that it's a rather cosmetic, cosmetic division. <laughs> Guy's too lazy to make cruiserweight. 
That's so, all it is. Go on, who, who then? Give us some names. All these Three guys. names. No, I'm not going to name names, but anyone who's under six foot three and not boxing as a cruiserweight, you have to ask yourself, what like, what's life all about, really? Okay, there you go. Controversial stuff from uh, Terry. That makes a change. Do I need to do an AOB? I feel like one. I'm just in the mood now. What do, you, what do you want to talk about? I don't know yet. I'm just going to just go off the top. You can edit the bits you don't like out, but the whole world loves this bit. Um, and thanks for listening. <laughs> I didn't enter. <laughs> right. Massive shout out to Chris Bill and Smith. Um, you know, he's won the English amateur title at 91 kilos. Why should you get excited about Chris Bill and Smith? Talented as hell. I've seen him give Hay and Grove some really good work. So, He's a guy that, if you're looking for pro prospects in the next two to three years, Chris Bill and Smith's one of them. If he makes Team GB, he'll definitely be one of our guys in Tokyo, so that's really good. You know, Anna Laurel, the Swedish pioneer in terms of female amateur boxing, like, you know, she won her first world championship in 2001. So that lets you know how far back her roots in the sport go. She's now retiring, I think she's 33. Fantastic lady. Well, from, you know, I trained at her club, in Sweden when I was out there so that's really good um, you know the usual you know big shout out to Dave Allen good to see Dave Allen sparring again you know I know he had his episode before but boxing is both a source of great stress but also a source of great therapy so seeing him and Dillian White you know sparring together just shows you the bonds that boxing can create so that was absolutely awesome Josh Qualey was sparring there as well looks like he's going to turn pro so good luck to Josh Qualey we were looking forward to watching him box in the amateurs this year. You know, our guy Courtney Bennett was really, you know, looking forward to those sorts of fights. But that clears up a slot, you know, towards the top of the rankings in the amateurs. So that's really, really good. October 15th, guys. If anyone's in London, it's a Duff Box promotion. Go and watch that. You know, you've got Big Domac and Lardy on there. I know he's a bit hit and miss with people, but he's just a great guy and loves all the fans. So get fully involved with that, you know. Mate, Ashley Bailey's fighting in that as well, so that's a good bout. I can see, you know, Andy's rolling his head now, but, you know, he should be making notes. You know, this could fit his social calendar. Thursday, anyone that listens in London, Dave McGinley, I know you're listening. Thursday night, York Hall is the Matchroom Prospects show. So, guys like Jake Ball, shout out to Jake Ball, JFB Promotions, all that good stuff. Even Joe is manager. Craig Richards is on there as always. The guy owes me t-shirts, but listen, get behind Craig Richards. He hasn't even had 10 bouts yet and the guy's looking the real deal. And, you know, like I say, if you're looking out, if you're looking for prospects to get behind and say you're first in the door, Craig Richards is one of those guys. Um, I think Ted Cheeseman's on there as well. So one of Southeast London's potential stars, massive ticket seller at Welterweight. You know, people are already talking about moving him up to fight certain people at Welterweight who he caused havoc to. So that's really good. English women's squad out in Turkey boxing. Um, young Ellie Scottney out of Nemesis Boxing Club doing the country proud. Uh, Rumbles Boxing Club, one of my favourite clubs in Britain right now, doing well in the Celtic Box Club. Congratulations to those guys. They run a beautifully run boxing club. They're a model, it's, you know, not even just in the amateurs and the pros. They're a model of how you train your boxers to be super skillful, ring intelligent. And also thoroughly good human beings. So big respect to Charlie Senior, Charlie Junior, Bill, and the whole squad there. Young Alfie Quinn, you know, and El Massey, the whole squad there. So just a quick roundup to let people know: look, boxing's thriving in this country at all levels. You know, I know there's a split in London. 
Big shout out to Brian John as well. I know he's been kicking my ass about the stuff I've been saying publicly, but look, the whole sport of boxing needs to get together because the money is not what it used to be. But if we all stick together and fight for this, we can get the money to where it needs to be. So let's all, you know, support the sport, support it in the right way, and let's have a great sport. Uh, just a couple of things to address before we leave you, which is what I'd like is for people to get in touch with us of any features you'd like us to include in the podcast. Um, we had a brief conversation on Twitter with, um, I think it was, but anyway, I've spoken to Martin and someone, uh, David McGinley had a, one of our listeners had a, a conversation with Martin regarding Irish boxing. Um, it's not something the guys necessarily know much about, but look, if ah, ah, yes. Oh, here we go. Michael Conlon signing to top rank. Let's not say, uh, okay, that's another thing I should have put in the AOB. So, Michael Conlon, notoriously robbed at the Rio 2016 Olympics, has now signed with top rank. So that's another the guy that said that boxing was crooked. Yes, yes. So so all the suspension he had for Maiba meant nothing. Mm -hmm. Paddy Barnes has gone pro. Not sure who he's signed with yet. I'm assuming Paddy will sign a management deal with MGM. And then, you know, considering his age, more likely to be a Frank Warren fighter. So we'll see where that goes. So in terms of Irish boxing, that's where we are. Let's see. Kelly Harrington, the amateurs, first fight back since the World Championships. She won. Um, Lynn Harvey. God, I'm really hoping she's Irish at this point. So Lynn Harvey, <laughs> Irish professional boxer. <laughs> you know, good news, man. Like, look, when an Irish female professional boxer is signing up to endorse supplements, man, it's a sign that the sport's crossing over. So big shout out to Lynn Harvey as well. I'm trying to think who else is out there in Ireland. Look, the guys in the Celtic Box Cup, I can call these guys out. Guys like Aidan O'Keefe, you know, Dervla Duffy. You know, we, we know our Irish boxing here. So, you know, David, well, wherever you want to cover, man, we've got this covered. So if you, like, if you, I mean, that branches out to other things as well. If there's anything you, anyone necessarily wants covered and we get enough feedback from it, then we'll introduce it. And uh, I'll just send Martin or Terry away with some really difficult homework about about Kazakhstani amateur boxing. And, we'll uh, do that. <laughs> Uzbeks, and then we'll get a three-hour feature on it. Yeah. Azeris, Uzbeks, wherever you want to go with boxing, we can go. Whatever it is. Whatever, I mean... Old boxers, I, I Carlos Monzon. Sure there's more imaginations Dick out there than Tiger, just mine. So George Benton, just who keep trained Devander Holyfield. Spinks Brothers. Harry Greb. Max Schmeling. Archie no, he's Moore. going to go on absolutely all night, so I think I'm night. just going to bring in the Foster, music now. Dwight Muhammad, Kawi. Right, Terry, Matthew you're going to have to the music's getting John louder. David Jackson. Goodbye. Terry Norris. <laughs> Only Norris. Thank you. You guys take care. <laughs>